0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I have often thought that a really great job or position or calling. In life, besides this one, I think this is the best ever, what I do. I love what I do here. But I, I've often thought if there was um, another calling that I would really enjoy, it would be to be the chaplain of the United States Senate. And I, I've met um, one of the chaplains, the last chaplain to the Senate, John Lloyd Ogilvy, He pastored in Los Angeles and Hollywood for years. And then in his um, latter years, he went to Washington, D.C., and for a time was chaplain of the Senate. And the chaplains to the United States Senate have an interesting position in what they're around and what they see and their perspective. Well, some years ago, it was the, I believe, 55th chaplain to the United States Senate, a, a man by the name of Peter Marshall. Now, Peter Marshall was not born in America, he was born in Scotland. And he immigrated from Scotland to America, and he's still spoken at thick Scottish accent, immigrated through Ellis Island in New York, went to Concordia University, graduated, became theologian slash pastor and chaplain to the Senate. He wrote a book. It's one of the best books ever. I would suggest to get it and read it for the perspective on the history of the United States. It's called The Light and the Glory. And what Peter Marshall does, being an immigrant, coming to the United States, realizing from his perspective that God, he believed, has a plan and a destiny for this nation to fulfill. And he traces American history from the voyage of Columbus all the way to the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, showing that America should fulfill a God-given destiny to be a light of the, to the world. And he will not only give stories, but cite some of our own literature in America. For instance, the second paragraph to the Declaration of Independence, beautifully written. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, not evolved, created. It's in our Declaration, and are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Light and the Glory, a fabulous book. The prophet Amos realized that the nation of Israel was to be a light to the other nations of the world. They did have a God-given destiny. They were to be a light. They were to reveal the glory of God. But they failed in their mission. And yet, I believe, it's my personal belief, it's my theological stand, that God has a plan for the nation of Israel and ultimately she will fulfill that destiny as God said they would in Deuteronomy 31 and as Paul declared in Romans 9, 9, 10, and 11. Excuse me. I mentioned a few weeks ago a character who came from France to this nation. I just want to reminisce a little bit, tie that point into where we're at tonight as we finish the book. In the 19th century, a French statesman came to America. His name was Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville was commissioned to observe what the French called this great experiment in democracy. You see, it was believed largely in Europe that any measure of liberty would lead to anarchy. Hence, you needed to have a strong central government, i.e. a king, a monarchy. Without a monarchy, you have what we call liberty. It will lead to anarchy. So de Tocqueville roamed to and fro throughout our country and wrote extensively. Here's just a few sentences of his observations. America is the place where the Christian religion has kept the greatest power over men's souls. And nothing better demonstrates how useful and natural it is to man, since the country where it now has its widest sway is both the most enlightened and the freest. And he went on to describe America is great because America is good. But, he said, when America ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Very insightful. He noted that there was a central belief in a single God, and by and large, the nation was very spiritual, centering around Jesus Christ, which accounted for its greatness. But, he warned, when America ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Well, I'm using that in our last two chapters because God did want the people of Israel to be a great nation. They could only be a great nation as they were a good nation following the precepts of God, obeying Him. But when Israel ceased to be good, Israel ceased to be great. And we're now at that closing part of the prophet's prophecy where he he points out that because they've ceased to be good, they will now go into captivity and face the judgment of God. You already know the theme of this book is God is holy, God is righteous, and God will not tolerate ongoing sin. That's sort of one of his in-your-face themes. And so in chapter 6, or chapter 6, chapter 8, boy, am I going backwards. Thus says, uh, Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. Okay, pause once more. If you don't remember the themes of this book or the breakdown of the book, here they are quickly. Chapters 1 and 2. I call the roaring of judgment. God declares He will bring reckoning. The roaring of judgment. Then chapters 3 four, five, and six, or the middle four, are all about the reasons for the judgment that is coming. And now, chapter seven, eight, and nine, the last three, are representations of judgment. So you have the roaring, you have the reasons, and you have the representations of judgment. And these representations are visions. He has five visions. He sees them while he's awake. Visions of of something depicting the coming judgment. The first vision was of a plague of locusts coming in and decimating the land. And as soon as the prophet sees it, he cries out, No, Lord, please stop. And he says, The Lord stops. The second vision is that of a consuming fire ravaging the land and its people. And he again prays, Lord, cease. And God, stop. And the third vision, this is from whenever last time we had a study on Amos. The third vision was a plumb line or a weight at the end of a rope. It was used for building to find um, a true level. And so God is saying He's going to judge according to a perfect standard. Now we have, in the next two chapters, the fourth and the fifth depiction or representation or vision. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. Does that sound good? I love fresh fruit. I especially love tasting the fruit from different countries. When I'm about to land in the country of India, I start salivating. Because they have a fruit there that's not in this country. It's about the size of a watermelon and it hangs high from trees called a jackfruit. No joke, if you open up a jackfruit and you get inside, it tastes like juicy fruit gum. It's awesome. Or when I go to the Philippines, first thing I think about is the mangoes. I've had mangoes in different countries of the world, but I've got to say the best I've ever had have been down in the Philippines. Wow, mouth-watering. I love fresh fruit. He sees a basket of fruit. Not a good sign. Let's find out why. And he said to me, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. So he got the test right. And the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord, many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Now, whenever there is a basket of fruit, it must mean two things. Number one, it must mean a harvest because it's been taken off the tree from whence it came and placed in a basket. So it it has been harvested. Number two, it speaks of rapid deterioration because though fruit is great, if you leave it in a basket too long, it won't be so great, it'll rot. So once fruit is taken in harvest and placed in a basket, there will be a rapid deterioration. You cannot leave it there unrefrigerated. This last Christmas, several weeks ago, a couple months ago, a month and a half ago, (laughs) I got as a gift from somebody a basket of fruit. Put it in the back of the car forgot about it because I had jacket back there and stuff and I didn't clean out my car and you know a couple days went by and a few more days went by and you know the sun shines through the windows and I get in the car and what is that who who what And, and eventually it got bad it smelled like judgment and I realized, oh, it's that basket of fruit that was in the back of the car. And, and so this basket of fruit means a harvest has taken place and there will be a rapid deterioration. In the Bible, the idea of a harvest speaks of judgment. I know in our minds, when we in America think of the harvest time, it brings romantic images to our mind. We think of Thanksgiving and getting family together and and the fields and the wind carrying the grain. Ooh, the harvest time. Or, if we're biblically inclined, we might see the harvest as a time of evangelism. Where Jesus said, look at the fields, white with harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord will send out workers out into the harvest field. However, primarily in the Bible, the idea of a harvest is the idea of judgment. In Revelation, I can't remember exactly what chapter, though I remember the passage. An angel sounds to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, wearing the crown, and he says, it's not chapter 19, though it's similar, it's around chapter 14, I believe, thrust your sickle into the earth and reap for the time for you to reap has come and the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then that eventually takes place in chapter 19 when Jesus comes back and He judges the harvest field, the earth. Jesus uses that same language in Matthew 24 and other similar passages in the New Testament where the angels are the reapers that go into the harvest field. It all is an idiom of judgment. So the fruit has been picked, placed in the basket. God is saying, I'm going to judge, and it will come very rapidly, even as there is a rapid deterioration. So He says, the end has come upon My people. Now, back in verse 1, in Hebrew, the word for summer fruit is kaitz. The Hebrew word kaitz. Now, down in verse 2, where it says the end has come, the word end in Hebrew is ketz. What do you see? I see kaitz. That's right. The ketz has come. It's a strong play on words. It's something unmistakable in the ears of the prophet. He would hear it and go, ooh, I know what summer fruit means. The kaitz means the ketz has come. The time has come for God to judge this northern kingdom of Israel. And so he says, I won't pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord. Many dead bodies everywhere. A rapid deterioration will take place. And they shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying... When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making an ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit? There's the mention of two festivals in these verses that we just considered. First is the new moon. The second is the Sabbath. Very interesting. Now, you know probably by now that the ancient Hebrews, when they kept their calendar, did not keep a solar calendar. We do. We keep our months in accordance to the revolutions of the earth around the sun, 365 and a third days as it makes its journey around the sun. However, the ancient Jewish calendar was not a solar, but rather a lunar calendar. It was by watching the... the waxing and the waning of the moon over a year's period of time and its orbit around the earth so that the Hebrew day doesn't begin at all in the day. It begins in the night when the moon shines. It begins in the evening, and that's when the day begins. Evening and morning, Genesis tells us, was the first day. Evening and morning was the second day. So it's all about the evening first followed by the day and it ends in the following evening. The new moon is always the head of the month. In fact, in Hebrew, Rosh Chodesh, head of the month. That's when the month begins. And the head of the month, the new moon, was always a a festival, a celebration. Uh, No common business transactions were to take place on the new moon. And again, then the Sabbath is mentioned. And the Sabbath, of course, God said through Moses, no ordinary work is to be done. On the seventh day. So you've got the new moon and the Sabbath. And you've got a group of people that are so greedy for materialistic gain. They kept the feast days, but all they could think about is, when is this new moon going to be over and this Sabbath day going to be over so that I can get back to ripping people off? You know, it's an interesting mindset. Somebody who will cover their hypocrisy by going through religious motions. It's sort of like God saying, "I notice that you go to church, but you live an immoral life." You know, you have the veneer that you live a straight life and walk a straight road, you carry a Bible and go to church, but your life is crooked." So it's interesting that while they were worshiping idols like the other nations, while they were ripping off the poor for materialistic gain, they were keeping the Sabbath and the new moon, but they couldn't wait till it was over. Because they really weren't keeping it. They were just going through the outward motions. And he says, "...making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works." In the ancient world, you would buy and sell always with a set of scales. And uh, the arm that was the hinge point for the set of balances could be tampered with. You could adjust it. And you could adjust it in such a way that you would uh, alter the weight of it so that whoever you're selling to, uh, if your scales were false... You'd rip them off. You'd give them less than what they are paying for. So you could enlarge the money, the shekel. But you could make what you're selling them, the ephah, the portion, much smaller. So what he's saying is you haven't been fair in your transactions. Verse 8, shall the land not tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it? all of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. Now, the Nile River did ebb and flow. It got larger and it would go smaller. It would get larger after the rainfall. It would get smaller after uh, the summertime, the drought season, and as water was diverted from uh, the main source into various channels for farming. So God is saying that like the Nile River, And you guys in your history should remember that because you used to be slaves in Egypt. I'm going to make the land of Israel swell. And what is he referring to? He's referring to the Assyrians coming in and filling that land with more population, but then decimating the population of Israel, taking them captive and killing them. So eventually there's the ebb. And the water subsides. And the land has fewer inhabitants Then at the beginning, all speaking of the Assyrian captivity and the attack, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, what does that refer to exactly? Can I give you a couple of guesses? Uh, You say, well, you're not supposed to guess. Well, it's because I don't know exactly. Some historians have pointed to a couple of different eclipses, one in 784 B.C. that they say is on record, and this is what verse 9 could refer to. Also in 763, there was another eclipse of the sun. It happened in that part of the world. It was very prominent. It's in their record books, and this could be referring to that literally. Others look at this as sort of figurative of during the time of judgment, it will be similar to that in that normal daylight activities will be curtailed. Well, it could mean both. In fact, it could mean both, and it could also mean a third thing, and it could mean all in one. All of these things could be true. And here's why. You know already that sometimes in the Bible a local event will picture a far-off event. Something that happens at one time will be a template, a historical model for something that will take place in the future, but on a bigger scale. You know that. For instance, the abomination of desolation. It happened historically. It was predicted by Daniel. It happened in the history of the Jews before Jesus came. But then Jesus came, and he said something interesting. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation, as spoken by Daniel the prophet... Stand in the holy place, let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. Jesus spoke of something that was predicted and fulfilled as something that would take place in the future. So we know that sometimes there are historical models that form a template for something, a preview of coming attractions. So you could have here, perhaps an eclipse, but perhaps a template for something in the future. Now, I think you know where I'm going with this. In Matthew 24, Jesus predicted that after the great tribulation of those days, the sun will not give its light, neither will the moon, and the stars in the heavens will fall, and the powers of the earth will be shaken. Then, in Revelation chapter 8, there's a prediction that takes place not after the tribulation, but during that great tribulation period. And it's very interesting, and it could dovetail here. So that this could speak of something that would happen locally, i.e. an eclipse. But to let Israel know that there's more on the horizon. So in Revelation chapter 8, it says, A third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon was struck. And a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of the daylight diminished on the earth. It's interesting that during that great tribulation period, yet future from our perspective, that the very source of energy in our biosphere, namely the sun, will be affected. Which, if you were to just sort of spell out what that means, would certainly cause huge variation in temperature. Huge changes in the temperature on the earth. And that's why... After that point, there won't be much survival of people on planet Earth. Billions will die, Revelation predicts. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, Jesus said. And when you read this description, but especially that Revelation chapter 8 description, it sounds something very similar to what scientists call nuclear winter. Now, there's a lot of talk today about the nuclear capability of nations around the world. United States has had them. European nations have had them. Uh, Russia has had them. Uh, Israel won't admit that they have them, but we know they have them. Uh, And we've known it for a long time. And now you've got a crazy man in Iran who says, we want them. And we talk about it, we talk about it. But what we don't talk much about is if they go off, do you know what that will mean to people on Earth? If they go off in large numbers. Well, a scientific journal posted what that would be like, and then it was placed in Parade magazine at a layman's level. This is from an article, Too Many Weapons in the World. Listen to this. Nuclear winter would be the delayed result. These are weapons of mass destruction, i.e. nuclear weapons going off, chiefly from clouds of fine, sooty particles injected into the atmosphere, especially from the burning of cities and petroleum facilities. It would entail widespread cold and dark. Poisonous gases released from the burning of cities and chemical plants, radioactivity slowly falling out of the atmosphere, And later, an increase in dangerous ultraviolet light at the surface of the earth, penetrating the war-breached protective ozone layer. Now, all of that is fascinating to me because in some of the same prophecies in Revelation about the sun and the moon and the stars being struck and less light is the other judgment that men will be scorched from the sun. So you think, how could there be less light and still be a scorching effect? This article tells you. The high-altitude soot would prevent warming sunlight from reaching the ground eventually. It would diminish the greenhouse effect, which is what keeps the temperature of the earth above freezing in the first place. Smoke plumes and firestorms rising above hundreds or thousands of targets throughout the north, northern mid-latitudes, spreading first in longitude and then in latitude, would cause temperatures to plummet eventually over much of the earth. A temperature drop of only a few degrees during the growing season is enough to cause massive crop failures and with no food people will starve. Okay now I read that article in conjunction with Revelation chapter 8 And this text. And I'm not saying they necessarily dovetail. It could be that the eclipse is what's predicted here, but it also could be that it's a hint, as so often is in the Bible, of something yet future. And I say that because by the time we get to the end of this book, we will already uncover the full plan of the nation of Israel for the end times. So this author will take us all the way to the end. Now what's interesting about Revelation chapter 8 is that the earth is trying to recover from previous judgment. The earth is affected, freshwater sources are affected, green plants are affected, animals, people are affected, Uh, there's uh, poisoned water sources, etc. And I can just imagine people on the earth gathering together in their ecological seminars, now trying to figure out what do we do to preserve our God, the earth. You know, we've called it Mother Earth, our great God, the earth that we worship and serve, not the true and living God, but it's all about the earth. And just when they're in panic mode trying to fix what's going on on earth, they look up into the heavens and they are gone. A third of the light is diminished. So it will be one judgment after the other. And it's interesting that we have perhaps a hint of that here in Amos. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth to every waist and baldness on every head. Now, it does not mean that if you're bald, it's a judgment from God. Oh, Lord forbid. I mean, every time we brush our hair, guys, you get to a certain age, you think, I'm being judged today. And some would be more judged than others. It doesn't mean that. Here's what it means. In ancient times, one of the customs for mourning for a dead relative was to shave your head. Somebody did that recently, didn't she? Yeah, I read about that too. But, but, this, but this is done for the mourning of somebody in your own family. The shaving of the head, the putting on a very rough... Kind of a gunny sack, potato sack material that would itch the skin, that sackcloth. And it was all indicative of, I'm in deep mourning because somebody I love has been taken away in death. So that's the idea of the mourning that will take place. In fact, look at the end of verse 10. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. Now watch this. So far, the judgments have been outward and physical. But it doesn't end there. Part of the judgment is spiritual and inward, not just physical and outward. For he says, "...not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord." but they shall not find it. Generation after generation, God would send to that nation prophet after prophet after prophet who would bring them the word of the Lord. Unmistakably, they would stand up in Jerusalem or shout out in Bethel, Thus says the Lord. And everybody would turn and look at these crazy characters. Some of them would do crazy things. But they got people's attention and they gave them God's Word. But what happened? What happened is people got tired of hearing these gracious, loving warnings or encouragements from God's prophet. And the people started opposing the preachers of ancient Israel. They took Jeremiah... And they lowered him with ropes and put him into a muddy cistern so he sunk in the mud. And he eventually said, I quit. I want to quit. He hated it. Amos was another one. In fact, you you may remember back in chapter 7, verse 12, Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There, eat bread. We don't want you in our parts anymore. Quit telling us the truth or what you perceive to be the truth in your own mind. So God sent them the Word. They opposed the Word. And so God says, okay, if you don't want it, you can't have it now. Now that is a sad state when God will so judge a people that because they have rejected Him for so long, He won't say another word to them. Okay, you don't want to hear from Me? You won't. So then eventually, the cry went out, boy, I'd love to hear a A message from God. There are no prophets anymore like these. I just want a Bible study. I want to get into the Word and hear what God has to say. Sorry, God closed up shop. You guys wanted a non-profit nation. You got it. There are no prophets. They're banished. You banish them. So God sent them the Word. They said they don't want the Word. Now God says I'm going to send you a famine. Think back in your mind and try to remember this, you who know your Old Testament. During the days of the priesthood of Eli, when young Samuel, who was dedicated to the Lord by his mom, Hannah, young Samuel was running around the tabernacle. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 3, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. God wasn't talking to them after that horrible period of the judges. They had so rejected God's messengers. God wasn't talking. Until one day, out of the blue, came crashing out of heaven to a young boy who would be open to hear God's voice. God said, Samuel? Samuel? He didn't know who it was. He didn't expect God to talk to him. So he went to the next room and said, Eli, what do you want? Eli said, what do you mean, what do I want? You're dreaming. Go back to sleep. He did. He heard a voice again. Samuel. Samuel. And he got up. Eli, go. you playing a joke on me. What do you want? Look, I didn't say a word to you, but I tell you what, young man, I think it could be that the Lord is trying to get your attention. So next time you hear the voice, don't wake me up. Rather respond and say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. So he did. There was no widespread revelation. God quit talking to the prophets. But he said, Samuel, Samuel. And the little boy looked up into heaven. Can't you picture it so cute? Speak, Lord. This little servant of yours is willing to hear. And then God gave him a message. You go tell Eli. I'm going to judge him in his house. And his priesthood is going to end because his sons have profaned the tabernacle. But my hand's on you. I'm going to use you. Then I remember the tragic end, as some of you do, in 1 Samuel 28 of the first king of Israel named Saul. Saul didn't care about spiritual things until he was dying. Or he knew his kingdom was at an end and that he would be dead soon because of a battle the coming day. So, it says, First Samuel 28, around verse 6 or so, uh, Samuel inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer... Or Saul inquired of the Lord. Forgive me. But the Lord did not answer him. He did not answer him by his voice. He didn't answer him by the umim. Remember the thurim, uh, umim and the Thumim that the priests used to determine the voice of God? Nor did God speak to them by prophet. God had nothing more to say. Now here's what's sad, and, and here's here's the, the where I've kind of come into this famine of the Word of God bit. How sad for a nation that produced prophets, spokespeople for God. To be without the voice of God. And then I think of more modern times. I think of places like England and Scotland. The center at one time for missionary sending activity, the center for producing the best expository teachers and preachers on the face of the earth. Their books are still with us today. Go to England today. Go to Scotland today. It's not a mission center, it's a mission field. There's a famine for the Word of God. You find an expository preacher in that part of the world, it's rare to have any depth at all. In fact, there are more mosques in England now than churches. And the sad truth is most of those mosques are converted churches. They used to be churches. They shut down. They've been bought up and now they're mosques. There's a famine for the true Word of God. Uh, By the way, one of the great great joys of Internet broadcasting, radio broadcasting, is that the Word of God can penetrate into different parts of people's lives, different parts of this nation and elsewhere where there is no Bible study. We get so many letters from people around the country and around the world. Thank you for teaching the Bible, because it's my, it's my mainstay every morning or every evening to give them the Scripture. So hear a famine of the Word of God, and they'll, they'll wander around for it and not be able to find it. In that day, the fair virgins and the strong men, two groups that represent the epitome of hope. Now they're young. They haven't married yet. Their whole life's ahead of them. Even they'll be hopeless. They shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, that's where the calf of idolatry was. And as the way of Beersheba lives, another pagan temple in that area down south, they shall fall and never rise again. Now we have the fifth and final vision. It's a vision of the destruction of the temple. And where was the temple? Okay, it was a trick question it wasn't in Jerusalem because again we're not dealing with the southern kingdom of Judah we're dealing with the northern kingdom of Israel and there was a rival temple up in Samaria up in Bethel and you remember when the kingdom split Jeroboam placed two idolatrous golden calves one at Dan in the far north of Israel and one at Bethel it became a stumbling block it divided the nation and why did he build them there? He said, oh, you people, he didn't want them to go down to Rehoboam, the king down south. He goes, you know, you don't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem to go to church. Just go here. We'll give you our own temple. And even though it's false and full of idols, that's okay. Just do your own thing. So they did. There was the beginning of that idolatry in that nation. So that's, that's the temple we're speaking about. Sorry for the trick. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, that is, in the northern temple of Bethel, and and He said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. And I will slay the last of them with a sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. The prediction of the fall of a temple that the capitals up on top would be struck so that the connecting braces, the lintels, would fall down, the whole roof would give way, and all of the worshippers therein would be destroyed. Maybe it was an earthquake, whatever. It fell. It's never been rebuilt. The ruins of Sebaste or Samaria are still with us to this day. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and I shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Now, when I read this again, it struck me. It struck me how similar this sounds to Psalm 139. you remember that? Remember what David says, Where shall I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I go to the utmost depths of the sea, I go into the heavens. I go. And he names the same places. And he goes, I can't flee from your presence or from your love or from your care. It's the same idea, only the opposite. Now, here's the truth. I'm I'm summing up both these passages. If you're a righteous person, the omnipresence of God, God being everywhere at one time, is a comfort to you. The college classroom at UNM, even there, God can be. Uh, the dusty rooms of Sandia Labs with the smartest brains in the country on an issue that may or may not know the Lord. Even there, God is. That's your grandma's house. You didn't want to go. God can be there. The truth of the omnipresence of God, if you're a follower of God, is a great comfort. But, now you look at these verses. The thought of the omnipresence of God, if you're not righteous, is terrifying. So God is saying, I'm going to judge and you can hide in the sea. You can go down into Sheol, the grave. I will find you and there I will do you harm. Not good. Psalm 139, it's good. Here, Amos 9, it's bad. The omnipresence of God. Theologians state it this way. God is everywhere present in the fullness or totality of his person. That's the doctrine of the omnipresence of God. Funny little story. There was an atheist who in his office had a Scrabble game on the desk and he spelled out the words for customers who would come in. God is nowhere. In the little Scrabble letters. So you'd walk in the room and first thing you see God is nowhere. Well, his little daughter just learning to read, came in and looked at it for a while. God is nowhere. God is nowhere. God is nowhere. And she decided to put a little separation between the W and the H or between uh, the O and the W. Excuse me. No, the W and the H. Excuse me. It's been a long time since I played Scrabble. So she looked at that. God is nowhere. God is nowhere. And she separated The W and the H. So now it says, God is now here. And she said, Daddy, look. Just a little decision to move a letter changed the whole message. It was God is nowhere. Now it's God is now here. For the believer, it's wonderful to know wherever you're at, he's at. You can't be far from God when there's a relationship. And if you don't know the Lord, no matter where you're at, you could even be at the altar of a church. You won't find God unless you take that step of being born again in a relationship with Him, come His way. And really the truth of this passage is you can run, but you can't hide. Carmel is mentioned in the text, even if you flee to Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is a rocky escarpment. It, it rises suddenly from the Mediterranean Sea on the coast of northern Israel, 1,800 feet above sea level. It's a good place to hide. There's over 1,000 caves just on the western slope. And the, most, the, the densest forests of Israel are found atop Carmel. God says, find the densest forest, find a cave in Carmel, you won't escape. Verse 5, the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn, and it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. There's that metaphor again. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Okay, this is what I love about Amos. Amos is a doctrinal prophet. He just articulated beautifully in poetic form the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere in the totality of his person. Now he's articulating in poetic form the omnipotence of God. God can do anything. Look, if God can make things melt or bring floods on the earth, in other words, all of the natural world is subservient to Him, then God's big enough to do what He just said He's going to do. So if you have any fleeting thought, Israel, that, all oh, I'll escape this. This is all bogus religious stuff. Well, God is saying to the prophet, let me just remind you of what I've done in the past, and I can do anything I want. I'm all-powerful. So that's the reminder there. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me? Ouch. Ooh, what a harsh thing to say. God is saying, you have sunken to the level of pagan nations. To me, you're like Ethiopia. You know, you say that you want to worship idols. You say that you're tired of following me and my ways, and so you bring in other uh, calves and other statues, and you're worshiping all this pantheon of deities. Alright, that's what you want. Then in my sight, you're no different than pagan worshipers. You to me are like the people of Ethiopia. O oh, children of Israel, says the Lord, did not I bring you up from the land of Egypt? The Philistines from Catfor and the Syrians from Ker? What is he saying? Follow their thinking and then you'll understand this saying. Their thinking is surely the judgment of God won't fall on us. We're the chosen people of God. We've been delivered from Egypt and settled in this special land, the Holy Land, the land of Canaan. God is saying, well, since you brought that up in your minds, let me just say, you're not the only ones that I brought into different lands. I took the Syrians from Kerr and placed them in Damascus. I took the Ethiopians from the Northern Arabian Peninsula and settled them in North Africa. I took the... um, whoever they are. Philistines, Yeah, from Catfor or the island of Crete and Cappadocia. And I replanted them in a new place. So you're not the only ones that I've given land allotments to. Don't rest upon what happened in the past. And have you discovered that a lot of people like to say, I remember when. Oh, those early days of being a Christian. Oh, they were so great. Let me tell you what I did for, for God. What are you doing today with the Lord? You have a rich history, rejoice in it. But you can begin well and finish poorly. Just ask King Saul, who at the end of his life said, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. The admission of a man who started beautifully and finished poorly. Well, we better finish this up. We have six, seven minutes. Okay. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God, verse eight, are on the sinful nation or kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Please mark that. Please place that as a marker in your brain that no matter what Israel does, not utterly, not totally. This is the first glimmer of hope in the book. And it ends with great hope, light and glory. For surely I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations. As grain is sifted in the sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake or confront us. Now watch how the book ends. On that day. I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. And I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The tabernacle, the tent, literally, had collapsed. That's the picture here. The nation, in other words, split during the kingdom of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. It split into north and south. There was a civil war and high anxiety. The the monarchy of King David has also been destroyed from its glory. And eventually the monarchy of David will cease from the time of Amos. In fact, there will be a prediction in Jeremiah that a guy by the name of Jeconiah, will blow it so badly that the royal bloodline of the monarchy of David will cease forever. Now we have a problem. God promised that one day one of his offspring, David's offspring, will sit on the throne to rule and reign forever. And now God just cursed that very bloodline and said, it's perpetually destroyed. So God cursed His own promise. So how does God get around his own curse? It's called a virgin birth. That's why you have two genealogies, one in Matthew, one in Luke. One traces the uh, genealogy of Joseph, the foster father of Jesus. One traces the genealogy of Mary, the natural mother of Jesus. The bloodline of Joseph had been cursed. That's the royal line. But because he is still the foster father married to the mother, he has the dynastic claim to the throne. Even though it's a polluted bloodline, that's okay because Joseph isn't his real father. The bloodline that goes to Mary is untampered with, does not go through King Jeconiah who is cursed, but is preserved. Though going back to David, it skips the whole royal bloodline altogether so that God can curse His bloodline as a judgment, get around His own curse by having the one who will occupy that throne born as a virgin. Ingenious. Okay, we gotta, we got to hurry up. There's more to say, but we got to hurry up. that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Now you will remember, let me just throw that in your mind, James in Acts 15 quotes this. As the prophet predicting that not only does God have a plan for Jews, but also Gentiles, And, and this is the text he pulls out. Now, you'll notice in verse 12, the name Edom. You say, what is that about? I'm going to tell you a word, okay? There's a literary device, and if you're an English teacher, well, you'll probably correct me on the pronunciation, but um, uh, synecdoche, that's it. Synecdoche. Have you heard of that? A synecdoche is a word, a literary device, whereby something specific mentioned has the meaning of something general and wider spread. Okay? So Edom is representative of all of the Gentile nations. You say, well, why is it mentioned then? Simply because of the history. When Isaac, his wife, Rebecca, was pregnant, she had stomach problems and she cried out to God, said, I got stomach pains. And God said, well, two nations are in your womb. That would account for it. And uh, in other words, twins. And and, um, the older will serve the younger. Esau came out, and then Jacob and Esau served Jacob. Esau didn't care about spiritual things, sold his birthright to Jacob. And from then on, there was a division and an animosity between the descendants of Jacob, Israel, and the descendants of Esau, Edom. So because of this beginning opposition, Edom became a synecdoche or representative of all those nations that would oppose Israel. So it's used here as a literary form. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, and the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills flow with it. In other words, the harvest in that day, the farmlands and the produce in Israel in that day will be so abundant... That they won't eat, you know, they'll be out plowing the field and things will be growing so fast that one will overtake the other. The cycle won't even be able to be complete because the things just grow so quickly. It will be so abundant. Now, we don't have time, but go to, on your own, Isaiah chapter 35 for a description of the change in geographical features, hydrological cycle features, etc., during the millennium. After reading this, on your own, not now, go to Isaiah 35 and read the changes that will take place on the earth. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. See, God isn't done with them. He'll bring them back. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land. And no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord. What a promise! A message of judgment ends with the light and the glory. When Israel was kicked out of the land, it happened in the captivity. Then Judah fell, there were 70 years in captivity. And then what happened? They returned. They came back into the land the first time. They were there for a number of years. They had struggles between nations. But eventually, when Rome occupied the world and the Jews revolted in 70 A.D., the Jews were again taken out of their land and remained out of their land until they were brought back a second time historically on May 14, 1948. Now, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because in Isaiah chapter 11, the 11th verse, God says that he will bring back the remnant of the captives from all of these nations scattered around, bring them back to the land of Israel for the second time. Now, when that was written, the first time hadn't even occurred. God says, when I bring them back the second time in line with Amos, they're there. I'm keeping them there. It's the land I promised to Abraham. And since 1948, they're there. And there's a lot of people that don't want them there. They're there. They're going to stay. And there's uh, you know, we could develop this for another 30 minutes and I'll spare you. We'll just close and we can talk about it, I suppose, a few of us afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for... The time that we are able to spend in this book, how we see the, the molding together of our failures and your capacities, your promises, your abilities. We are finite and sinful. You are infinite and perfect. And you and your perfect plan devised a way whereby those who are captive either to Egypt or Babylon or sin can be redeemed and brought back into a relationship with a Covenant God. And I pray if anyone here is estranged from you, that they would take that step to come back to you and follow you, not only tonight at church while we sing this next song, but for the rest of their days. Lord, I pray you'd fulfill your destiny, your plan in our lives, that we would be a light to nations around us, a light to people in our community, and share Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.